Hey everyone, this is Becoming a Bible Nerd. I'm Carrie Hunt, and I'm so glad that you are joining us. We believe this ancient Eastern text was never meant to study alone, so we choose to do it in community. We will take one book a semester, one chapter a week, and really dig in to understand the context and culture that this book was written in so that we can better understand how to apply what God was saying to our lives. Our goal is to equip you and your community to fall more in love with Jesus because you have fallen in love with his word. This season, we are going through the letter to the Romans, and this episode is the introduction. Well, we're going to start off. Well, first of all, I want to start off by saying, hey, I'm glad we're back. And thank you so much for tuning in and going on this journey with me because it really does help all of us to stay accountable and to have a timeline and then to be able to discuss these things together. So to start off, this was a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Now we got introduced to Paul in our Acts study, and we have actually studied several of his letters, but we're going to review him today just for our own um, refreshment, but then also in case someone is joining us that hasn't been through these studies. Paul was a diaspora Jew. Now that sounds like a big technical term, and what that means is that in Jesus's day, whenever um, you know the Gospels were written and he is in Israel, not all Jews lived in Israel because of exiles that we are familiar with because of the book of Daniel. So what happened, these different world powers would come, they would occupy Israel, and they would disperse the people there. So in Jesus's day, Jews are actually living all over the known world, and the ones that lived outside of Israel were known as diaspora Jews. So he was born in Tarsus. Now this is the fourth largest metropolitan area in Turkey. It's right off the Mediterranean Sea. So think of, he wasn't born in a little quaint, quiet village. This was completely urban. And we see from other studies that the fact that he has Roman citizenship, and this is going to help him since he has dual citizenship, this is going to help him when he gets arrested. Now, he has dual names, which was something very common in the world at this time. This is not to be confused with a name change. We see in the Old Testament that there were um, some of God's chosen people that he actually renamed them, and it was amazing turning points in the history of the Jews. This is not the case. His Hebrew name is Saul. So when we first meet him in Acts, he, he went by Saul. We knew him by Saul. That's his Hebrew name. He was probably named after King Saul, the first king of Israel. His name means prayed for, and he was also from the same tribe as King Saul, the tribe of Benjamin. Now, his Roman name was Paul, and it means small or little one. And so whenever he's going into the Roman world, he is going to use his Roman name, probably for um, just to have some... Um, camaraderie and saying, hey, I'm one of you guys too, to build that relationship. He was also a Pharisee. Now we are familiar a little bit with what this term is because of past studies. It's a religious sect that came about during the exile. You know, these, these Jews that got exiled and they're living in Babylon and they're living in across the world, they have to figure out how they're going to still worship their God, but not have access to the temple. So the Pharisee system was born. It's a religious sect. And these guys were leaders in the synagogues. Um, they were the ones that were leading people spiritually. And one of the brightest among the 
Pharisees was Paul, and he actually studied under Rabbi, Rabbi Gamaliel. Now, remember in past studies, when someone was training and going through the school and their next step, they did not get cut, and their next step was to become a rabbi. They approached a rabbi that they wanted to look like, and they said, that you know, they asked, hey, can I follow you? And they went through a scrutiny of tests. Well, Gamaliel is one of the leading rabbis of this time. So we know that Paul has to know his stuff for Gamaliel to say, yes, be my disciple. Um, one of the most renowned rabbis of his time, Gamaliel, was the grandson to the famous rabbi Hillel. Now, in Jewish culture, you typically fall under one of two schools of thought, Rabbi Hillel's school of thought, and he was known for taking a more liberal view of Old Testament law, or Rabbi Shammai, who was more conservative. So Gamaliel was Rabbi Hillel, the more liberal rabbi, his grandson. So we just see a great lineage of rabbis, and Paul is falling right into place under this liberal thinking. Acts 5.34 mentions Gamaliel. And it says that he was honored by all the people. And he actually stands as a leader in the Sanhedrin and acts and warns other leaders to be cautious when they are dealing with apostles who are on trial. He was the one who says, leave these men alone. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. It's a very famous well-known speech that is given in Acts. And this is Paul's mentor, his rabbi. Now, Paul was a persecutor of Christians, but he had this radical transformation on the road to Damascus where he was headed to persecute the early church leaders. Jesus actually appears to him and blinds him for a short time. And then he was taking care of some of the early disciples who were being obedient, I'm sure fearful at the time. And then after his sight is restored, it says that he goes to Arabia for three years. And we don't really exactly know what is going on in this time, but we can speculate that he revisited the Old Testament that he had memorized and known in his school of studies and really started looking through the lens of Jesus being the Messiah, retraining and reteaching himself, reschooling himself and, he, um, and, and getting a no, now new worldview. It was there that he connected all the dots with the ancient scrolls and the knowledge of Jesus as Messiah. He felt called to the Gentiles. Now, this was a new thought in the Jewish mind. We see that God's plan was for the Gentiles all along, and we see this all over the Old Testament, but you really had to have eyes to see. And in Paul's day, the Jewish people confused God's mandate to be holy or set apart with the feeling that they were superior to the Gentiles, and they weren't even wanting to be touched or associate with Gentiles. So it's sad that we see this religious spirit even in the ancient world, where when we are called to be set apart and different, we get this um, superiority complex instead of just recognizing that by the grace of Christ, we are to be set apart so that we can be a light to the world. And we want our light to shine to others and we want them to experience love so that they can come to know Christ too. So again, 
like I put in my notes, we actually see the same tension in the church today. How do we respond to people that have different lifestyles and beliefs than us? And this is an important question to tackle today. We cannot shun them or withhold the love of God from them because they are different, but we can't embrace them in such a way that they feel like we're communicating that they can stay in their sin. Jesus called out sin all while embracing and fiercely and fiercely loving the person. He spoke truth and love. We see that sometimes people chose to follow him and to give their all to him, but then other times people said, nah, this isn't for me. They didn't accept it. But that never deterred Jesus from holding to this model. He never watered down the message to get people to stay, and he never made anyone feel shame for their past choices. He was such a master. So right now, going into the semester, we're gonna stop and pray. Jesus, right now, today, we are asking for this wisdom that you had, this discernment and love, and may it flow from us to others so that the world may know there is a Messiah. Thank you for shaping us into your image. And this semester, we give you free reign. We pray that you go into the dark places of our heart and that you just weed it out, Lord God. Make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, back to Paul. He was radical about reaching these people outside of Israel, the Gentiles. He was called to show Gentiles how to become a part of the family without having to convert to Judaism. It was just through believing and obeying. He didn't have any written instructions or commentaries to guide him on how to do this. This was a new revelation that Gentiles would be grafted into the family of God, and it was only the Holy Spirit that could teach and guide him. So he left Israel and traveled through Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. The first place Paul would go upon entering every town was the local synagogue. So he still held true that God um, came for the first the Jew and then to the Gentile. So he would always go to find his Jewish brothers and sisters to see if they would partner with him, and then he would reach the Gentiles. Well, when studying Acts, we see that Paul takes three missionary journeys— and he never makes it to Rome, but he wants to. It was on his third missionary journey that he finally writes to Rome. He was in Corinth, and he was actually finishing up his letters, the first and second Corinthians. Paul writes a total of 13 letters, and get this, letter writing was just then becoming a very popular form of communication in the Greco-Roman world. He sends this letter to Rome with Phoebe, and we'll learn more about her throughout the semester. But this was not a common form of communication within Judaism. So what I thought was so cool about this is that we see how Paul is adapting to the times. What a lesson to the church. We can learn a lot about dated methods, and we need to always be using current and fresh methods to reach the unchurch. We must adapt our methods, but not the message. It's just a new way of getting the information to others. So right after he wrote Romans, Paul was arrested and imprisoned by the Jews and finally arrived in Rome three years later as a prisoner, and he ministered for two years as he wrote letters to the Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and to Philemon. Little is known about this church in Rome, but a fourth century church father claims an apostle did not find found it. It wasn't found by an apostle, let me say that, but a large group of Jewish Christians found it. So it is speculated that maybe on the day of Pentecost, there were people that had traveled there, made their pilgrimage there to, to, to celebrate that feast 
they got saved, and then they returned home changed. But we'll never know exactly how this church came to be, but what we do know is it became well known through its growth and power. So Paul wanted to accomplish several things in this letter. He wanted to prepare a way for his visit. He hoped Rome would be a base to support pioneer work in Spain and all that had moved west. He wanted Rome to have a more exhaustive exposition of the gospel in case he never was able to make it. And he addressed all the little things that would pop up in new church plants, like how to build unity between the Jewish and Gentile believers, how to respond to false prophets and things like that. Sometime, something that we all need to fully understand um, what is going on in this letter. A couple of things. In 63 BC, so this is before Christ, Pompey deported Jewish citizens to Rome. So he came and occupied Jerusalem. And just like all the leaders before him, he scatters them. And there was a sect of um, citizens that had to move to Rome. So this is how the Jewish family gets, families get their start there. About 5% of citizens were deported to Rome. Um, 40, in 41 AD, so this is after Jesus has died and resurrected, Claudius Caesar makes a decree. This is after Pentecost as well. He restricted public meeting of the Jews. It seems that there was something going on in the synagogues causing problems. We don't really know. But at that point, he restricted any public gathering of the Jewish people in Rome. Well, eight years later, 49 AD, the disturbance grows and Claudius expels the Jews, including the Christian church. So we don't really know if the problem was with Jewish people who had not accepted Jesus as Messiah, but then the Christian church just got round up with them or what. But Acts 18 tells us that Priscilla and Aquila were a part of this expulsion. They were leaders in the early church and they had to leave Rome as well. Well, in 54 AD, about five years later, Claudius dies and this law was revoked. So all the Jewish people were allowed to return back home. But in those five years, the Gentiles had taken over the church. So now there is tension between Jew and Gentile, and it continues to grow because the Gentiles are very different. They don't have all the history and the traditions and the way of doing things that the Jews did. So I can imagine the tension of them not understanding why Jews do all these things. And I can completely understand how the Jews might feel because everything that the Gentiles did, they were forbidden to do and had to go through all kinds of religious rites to get right with God so that they could enter the temple and properly worship him. So Rome was a city of slaves, lots of slavery going on. It was a city of lust and sexual perversion to the max. I mean, I think that we don't even have a clue because we just aren't, um, we aren't exposed to this type of sexual perversion in our world. It was a city of gross economic injustice, injustice and violence and war. We will notice that Paul doesn't address social reform. He writes on the righteousness of God and the significance of the law. Paul quoted from the Old Testament in the book of Romans more than all his other letters combined. And we will evaluate this. 61 direct quotes from 14 Old Testament books. Constable, Dr. Constable says it this way. The proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ solved the crucial and urgent needs for the society as a whole and for the people in particular. 
it was still the imperative of the Christian church and will advance only to the extent that the gospel advances. So in other words, point people to the gospel. Once they become in covenant with Christ and they feed themselves in the word and prayer and in fellowship with other Christians and they continue to allow God to transform their heart, that process is called sanctification, then these things for social justice normally come out. You cultivate a heart to serve. You cultivate a heart to give. You cultivate a heart to love your neighbor as yourself, even though you're different. So it's the gospel that changes everything. We don't bring or demand a change. We invite people into the presence of God and allow him to perform heart surgery. And then they are truly passionate about social justice. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them by the truth and your word is the truth. So we are to lead people to sanctification by introducing them to the word of God and allowing that word of God to transform them. All of a sudden, well, I just went over that. I'm sorry, catching up on my notes. So what are we to do over the next 16 weeks? What is this going to look like? Well, the assignment is to read one chapter a week and to take notes over it. The way I personally like to do it is to take subsections. You know how there's subtitles all through a chapter? Well, my goal when I sit down in the morning is just to slowly work through one section. And you know what? If I don't get to the end of it, I don't get to the end of it. I would rather absorb and take in what three verses mean with clarity and understanding than to have a checklist of 39 verses that I don't get anything for. So when I sit down, I kind of read over that section and then I take one or two verses at a time and in my notes, I paraphrase them. I would say it, I write in my notes how I would say it, how I would communicate it. And then I tackle those couple of verses almost word by word. Like I go through and say, okay, what exactly does this mean? Even in Paul's greeting, when he says grace and peace to you, what did that mean in the ancient world? I think that I know what it means, but it could mean, mean something completely different. That's where a commentary comes in place. You need a good study Bible for this series in a language that you can understand. For example, I personally stay away from the King James Version because it confuses me with all of these Thou's. And so I take a, um, a, a good scholarly um, translation, but that is in more modern words. I personally use the Holman Christian Standard version for my personal study time. And that is just, I've told people this many times before, um, somebody had given me that Bible and I fell in love with it. Not because, oh, that's the only translation that is true or, or, or worthy or anything like that. It's one where God can speak to me, I can understand. Now, in a study Bible, there is commentary, man's explanation, scholarly men. So this is not um, the divine word of God. It is people who have studied and really love God and sought him out and see, they try to explain in modern language what is going on. So you have the commentary that helps you understand what the verses mean in the bottom of your Bible. But then as you're gonna find out, there's gonna be verses you have questions about that don't fit in the bottom of your Bible. So that's where a commentary um, in and of itself, a lone commentary can help you. Some quick, easy ways to find a commentary. You can um, download the Enduring Word app on your phone. It is a great resource. David Gusick really explains things. He, he gives you the Jewish history of things, and it's in modern day language. Also, another go-to, 
um, that you can purchase, but you have to find your particular book of the Bible is Dr. Constable's Notes. You can download the app, which that's an abbreviated um, version of his notes, or you can download all of his notes online if you go to sonniclight.com org, I believe. Um, or you can go onto Amazon and buy them bound and printed. To me, that's the easiest way. They're a little pricey, about $30 a volume, but each volume will cover a couple of books in the Bible so you can reuse them at other times. He is a tenured professor that's retired from Dallas Theological Seminary, but he wrote his notes for his Sunday school class. So it is in language for the common person. Now, there's many other commentaries out there. These are just my suggestions for people just getting started. So, I pause at every verse that I read, and I, because Paul was very intentional about every single thing he wrote, even down to when he refers to the Son of God as Jesus Christ versus Christ Jesus. The, the, the titles of Jesus's name and the order that it said actually has two different meanings, not like completely different meanings, but it was driving home a particular concept in the way that he wrote it. Do the best you can, meet others and have discussion. It is really the most fun and you'll grow the most when you meet weekly with a, a group of people to share what y'all are learning. And then you're gonna tune in on Thursdays or any day that is convenient for you after for a full lesson on what my team has discovered and hopefully we'll tie it all up and each of us will have good understanding of that chapter. Remember that this ministry is a listener-supported ministry. So if you are a fellow Bible nerd and you would love to support our ministry through prayer or financial support, we greatly appreciate it. And you can do that by visiting our website at www dot becoming a com and clicking on the giving tab. We thank you all, those of you that tune in, those of you that share testimony, those of you that respond to our post. We love having this family and we really we wouldn't be doing it without you. So you make it fun. Thank you so much. Share this with your friend. We are expectant of this semester and as always, happy reading. <music>